About eight years ago, uh, I remember a couple, young couple sitting back here. I was able to meet them, get to know them, Chad and Sabrina. Uh, they worked together at a plant in uh, Von Orr. And uh, Chad was from Morristown, Sabrina from Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, but actually born and raised in China. And uh, they were very much in love with each other, uh, but they uh, were just courting and courting and courting. And finally, uh, Chad talked to me about it a little bit and uh, said, you know, there's just some things that maybe if we could talk to you. I said, okay. Very interesting what she shared with me. She said, they, she said, we do love each other, but I cannot marry him now because we do not have the same God. And I was very struck by that, that a person who did not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew enough to know you cannot have a marriage if you don't have the same God. And I do pray that everybody thinking about marriage will understand that. You cannot have the God-ordained covenant if the two people being married don't share the same God. Now, God can still work in that, but if you're planning marriage, it is never God's will to marry outside of covenant faith in a common God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we began to talk. Her struggle was no one in her family had ever been a Christian. And she needed to honor her ancestors. She was from a background that honored ancestors. And so it came to me, person here in the church had given me some things about the Jesus film. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jesus film, you need to look up the Jesus Project. Don't do it right now. <laughs> Thank you very much. It can, it'll be, it's a great tool. But let me tell you the story about it. 1979. There were some non-Christian director and producer out in Hollywood that decided, wouldn't it be a very artsy thing to do to have a movie of the life of Jesus taken word from word from the Gospel of Luke without any addition of character advancement, just the dialogue and story of the Gospel of Luke. They made it, but... Guess what? They decided there's no money in it. But Bill Bright, a crusade, campus crusade at that time, businessman that he was, visionary, had an idea. What if a Christian businessman would buy the rights to it? So he went to a man who had been successful in oil in Texas and for $1 million bought the rights to that film. Started playing it all over theaters all over the United States. Then he had the idea that you could take the dialogue and you could sub other languages onto the speaking so that it would not look strange. It would look professional. So they made Spanish version, French, Portuguese, and on and on till people were lugging projectors and big canisters of film into jungles. They were learning languages, putting them on the films. Then computerization comes. Now we're not just in film, VCA, uh, VHS, DVD. Some of you can Google that later as well. Okay. <laughs> then on to cell phones, 
computers, and then solar panel screens to power everything. Today, over 4 billion people have seen the Jesus film. It has been presented in 1,700 heart languages. So I was able to give Sabrina a copy of the Jesus film in Mandarin. God opened her eyes. She understood. She listened and watched. And she, at the end, received Jesus Christ as her Savior. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Okay. Now she had to go and tell her family about it. She got a plane to go to Shanghai. Told her mother what had happened. Mother didn't understand, so she is emailing me. I said, is your mom got a computer? Oh, she does. She can download it on her computer. So her and her mom watched the, uh, the Jesus film in Shanghai on the computer. Mom becomes a believer. Now, dad's not ready, but dad got sick. He started thinking these church folks might be able to help him some. <laughs> so he, through Sabrina, said, have your church folks pray. The mom said, pray. And God healed him. Wasn't long, Sabrina baptized here, performed their wedding right here, and we set up Skype and sent the service over to China and had a Chinese service right here. And now they have the little boy, beautiful, and they had to relocate and live over further East Tennessee. But here's where I'm going with this. Somebody has to be first in every family. Maybe you're the first. Maybe you're the first. And I want you to look at Genesis 6 because here's the first. Now Noah's not the first man to ever know the grace of God. But he's the first man in the Bible, the Bible says he knew the grace of God. The first time the word grace is used in the Bible, and this is the reason I had Terry read this passage, is Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor, and the word favor there in Hebrew is the same corresponding word translated in our language through Greek, grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah becomes an expression of what I'd like you to focus on with me this morning. Grace for living. This man lived by grace and he lived in a graceless age. But God's grace was sufficient for him, right? God's grace was sufficient. Now notice, very, very important as we look at this passage. Noah was first the one to be said he found grace. Now here is a Bible teaching, insight for you. Use it in your Bible study. Anytime a doctrine in the Bible has, is mentioned for the first time, a major doctrine, you will find in that first usage all the DNA of that subject that's going to be expanded on throughout the rest of the Bible. So here you have the first use of the word grace. It's used with Noah. And what I'm going to ask you to do this morning as we think about the grace of God is to see that the DNA of everything about the grace of God 
that is in this entire book, the Bible, the DNA of it is right here in this story. Now let's look at this. What are the essential qualities of grace that makes it so amazing? First of all, it is sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace. This morning, I'm going to overemphasize what I usually do in an outline, and I have a reason for it. Because I want you to be able, and I hope you will take notes, but then you can take these notes, study this yourself, you can sit down with anybody then and tell them about the grace of God because it's all right here. Number one, God's grace is sovereign grace. What does the word sovereign mean? It means authority. It means the origin. Grace does not begin with man. Grace does not begin with religion. Grace begins with God. Notice what it says. Noah found grace. Where did he find grace? In the eyes of the Lord. That does not mean that he found grace because God saw him and God said, there's a pretty good guy, I'll help him out. No, in the eyes of the Lord means the mind of the Lord. From the Lord himself, he looked on Noah with favor. It originated in God. What do we learn about grace, friends? God's grace is uncaused by any other force than the loving heart of God. Grace does not start with human effort. It starts with the good nature of a God of all grace. Grace is uncaused. Grace, listen carefully, secondly, it is undeserved by human merit. We do not deserve grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Friend, listen carefully what I'm about to tell you. Don't ever ask God to be fair with you. You do not want God to be fair with you. Because if he's fair with you, you may not vote for him, but you'll be feeling the burn, all right? Because that is what's going to happen. You don't want God to be fair with you. You don't want God to give you justice. If we got what we deserve, the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature and by our action rebel sinners against God. And there was nothing in us that made God have to love us. He's just love. He's just that love. God loves you not because you earn it. And friend, there's your peace this morning. You can stop trying to earn God's love. He loves you because he is love. And friend, when that breaks into your mind, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But as long as you're trying to earn the love of God, you'll miss the love of God. You'll miss the grace of God. It is a free gift, unmerited, and it's unconditional. You don't pray, and God says, now you've prayed enough, I'll give you grace for your prayers. 
You don't go to church long enough and say, I've gone this many Sundays, and God says, now that's enough. You get grace. Grace is fully unmerited. It's the unmerited, unconditional free gift. What's the Bible say? The wages of sin. What do we earn? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a God. Aren't you glad for sovereign grace? Aren't you glad you don't have to worry if you've done enough? But it's done, paid for by the Lord himself. It's not just sovereign grace that's the source of grace. Here's the second thing. It's sufficient grace. Notice the sufficiency of grace. How sufficient was the grace of God here in this time? Well, what was the world like? Does God's grace only work when the world is doing a little better? We got to get the world better so God's grace can get something done? What was the world like? Verse 5. Verse 5. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt. That word corrupt means rotted like dead flesh. The earth was corrupt. It was corrupt. God's sight, he saw it all. And the earth was filled with violence. It was a murderous society with the spirit of Cain and Nimrod. Verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. People just lived to find more ways of sinning. Verse 6, look at it. Verse 6, it was so bad. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Now stop here. You've got to think theologically, and then you've got to think human personality. Theologically, it doesn't mean God said I made a mistake. Because if God made a state, mistake, guess what? He's not God. God can't make a mistake. He's perfect. He can't change his mind. He can't change himself. So theologically, this is not saying God said, whoops, I've made a mistake, I've got to start over. No, what God's doing is communicating like we would to each other. God's trying to come down from infinite God and get you to understand how he feels like you would feel as a human being when you made something and it's all putrid and terrible and God says, it grieves me that what I created and behold, it was very what? Good, and I created my perfect image bearers, made in my likeness, made to bear my image, and look at this. And that's how God felt. He's communicating in human terms the pain that was in his heart. But notice, in spite of the general nature of the world, God's grace was sufficient. But now, friends, let me tell you how bad it was. You think that's the bottom? Here we go. I'm going to be very careful. 
Here's the cellar. Here's the bottom basement of the Bible. Look at verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose, all they wanted. The Nephilim, now the Nephilim there is a very unusual word, cannot really be translated, but it means giants or it would maybe be better understood as titans. When you read, listen carefully, Roman mythology and Greek mythology that talks about creatures that were like half God, half human giants, though that's mythology, it's rooted in ancient true history. That's who the Nephilim are. I'll come back to that in a moment. They were giants. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and that means physical relationship. When the sons of God were intimate with the daughters of man, they bore children to them. This is the Nephilim. They were mighty men who were of old, men of great renown, which means incredible fame and superhuman strength. Now, what's being described here? There's two interpretations, but one clearly is more aligned with the New Testament. Number one, some people say the sons of God here means the sons of Seth, the descendants of Seth, the godly line through Adam and Eve's son Seth, born after the murder of Abel. And that they are intermarrying with the wicked descendants that have come also through Cain and others. But that does not satisfy what's going on here because the Bible tells us, we'll not go there, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in Jude, Jude chapter 6, that there are a, there's a group of angels who left their inhabitants and they intermarried with or interrelated physically with human beings and created this new kind of bizarre being. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, those angels who did that were taken by God and chained in everlasting darkness and they are there right now until the judgment day. Those fallen angels will be dragged out of that pit and they will stand before God for this wicked corruption of the earth and they will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. So what you have here, you have fallen demonic spirits pre-flood entering into physical relationship with humans. So this terrible, wicked, ungodly, super perverted race is created and God wiped the whole thing clean. Now do you know why he wiped it out? He wiped the whole earth clean and he took those angels that did that and they are in the pit till this day. 
and they will be dragged before the great white throne and cast into everlasting doom. That's what the Bible says. Unspeakable evil. This world that Noah lived in makes the most wicked spot on the earth today like a Sunday school picnic. But God's grace was there. Amen? God's grace was there. Inexhaustible grace. God said, I will not leave myself without my witness of my grace. I made a promise to Adam and Eve that a Redeemer is coming and he's coming. And if I have to save just eight people and wipe this earth like a dish and start over, my Redeemer's coming. And that's what happened. It was eternally sufficient. God's grace was enough to save anybody who would repent and turn to him. But notice, God's grace became effective in somebody's life. Because God's grace that's in his heart doesn't help a sinner until that grace in God's heart changes his heart, right? And notice, Noah found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What do you learn about grace there? That sufficient grace becomes what the theologians call effectual grace. There's a grace in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know about. You may sing about. You may hear about in Sunday school. But there's a day when the Holy Spirit makes Christ come alive to you. You recognize yourself a hell-deserving sinner without hope. And by God's grace, you call out for mercy on Jesus. And the effectual grace of God gives you new life. That's salvation. And my friend, you need to know that you've not just heard about a grace that's efficient to save, you better make sure it's been effective for you. Because there's a lot of paint in the paint store, but it's not cleaning your house. And there's all the paint to clean us up in Jesus Christ, but you've got to know the experience. Friend, you've got to be born again. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? And if you don't know that you've been born again, I'm pleading with you. You get a Bible, you get alone with God, you read his word, and you plead with him until he makes Jesus Christ real in your heart. Amen. Be saved. I'm pleading with you because God will save anybody. He's never turned anybody away who stops playing games. When you stop playing games and you're serious, God's serious. Amen. And some of us here, I'm begging you, stop playing the game. Stop being satisfied with church and say, I'm not going to go out into eternity with a salvation that has never changed my life. I'm not going to stake my eternal soul for the next 10 trillion years on a salvation that never made Jesus real to me. Because I'm telling you, when you know Christ, Christ becomes real to you. Amen. And it's not church anymore. It's not Baptist. It's not Pentecostal. It is Jesus Christ. Amen. And you better make sure you know him. Because salvation is not in a church. It's not in a baptistry. And it's not in communion. You've got to feast on Jesus. 
I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks. <laughs> and that plane may go down. Because if that plane goes down, there's nobody in this room or hears this on radio or on the internet who's going to point a finger at me. Because I'm telling you, Jesus will save you, but nobody else can. Saving grace. That's the second thing I want you to see. It's saving grace. What are the qualities of saving grace? Now, again, I'm giving you some words here. I'm not just trying to show off that I know a lot of words that start with D. But it'll help you remember it so that you can use it. What is saving grace? What's the qualities of saving grace? Number one, it's definite grace. It's grace. It's not earned. Noah found grace. It doesn't say Noah earned grace. He found grace. It was a gift. It's definite. It is grace. It's real, but it's a free gift. Secondly, God's grace, saving grace, is a delivering grace. It's a delivering grace. Noah lived in a contamin <laughs> contaminated world. Noah was contaminated. Noah was not a perfect man. He was a sinner, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had already decided, I'm wiping this world clean, but I'm going to save Noah and his family and anybody else who will come into the ark. But judgment is coming, and everybody's going to be judged except the people that are in that ark. It's definite grace. My friend, God makes a difference between the world and his people. The Bible says, mark it down. The foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knows those that are his. And if you've got his name on you, I don't know what's coming your way in your life. I don't know what's coming my way in my life. But if his name is on you and he's named you, you're going to be okay. It's a delivering grace. You're not going to hell. You're not going to stand in judgment. You're not going to the devil. You have Jesus and you've got it all. You're safe. Number three, God's grace is not just definite grace and delivering grace. God's grace is distinguishing grace. It makes a difference in a person's life. People know that the grace of God has come. Something's happened. Look what happened to Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Why was he righteous? Look at the verse before. Because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't his righteousness. It was God's righteousness given to him. He was righteous and he became a blameless man. That doesn't mean he was sinless, but he was a man nobody could say, look at that hypocrite. He was blameless in his generation. What kind of generation was it? Wicked continually. Giant monsters of wickedness roaming the earth. Murder and kidnap and slavery and every form of immorality. But he was different because God had saved him. He walked with God. 
He's not just sitting around saying, hey, just call me when the rain starts. I got some things to do, God. Thanks for saving me, but you know my family's busy. Uh, you know, God, thanks for saving me, but you know what's like these days. I mean, you only gave us 168 hours. Got things to do. No. What was he all about? He walked with God. What did Jesus say to every disciple? You want to be my disciple? What's his invitation? Follow me. Are you a Christian? Are you following Jesus? You say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't follow Jesus. You better check up on what it means to be a Christian. He walked with God. It's a distinguishing grace. When God saves you, he, he's not done with you, but he's done something. Right? Like the preacher said, I'm not all I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what he used to be. Right? It's a directive grace. There's the next number four. He's got things to do. No, you're not going to sit around and wait. God says, I've got something for you to do. Talk about a project. Look at verse 13 all the way through verse 21. Describes the biggest project the world had ever seen. And maybe the biggest project the world has ever seen. The building of this ark. He said, I've got something I want you to do, Noah. You didn't work for your salvation. I saved you by my grace, but now you're going to work out your salvation. You see, you weren't saved by your works, but you were saved to work. And he that has begun a good work in you is going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he has saved us by our gra his grace, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, According to his mercy, he saved us, but he's saved us to be his workmanship that we might bring forth what? Good works. Friends, listen, Christianity works. You know why? Because it's Christ. The reason some people have Christianity that doesn't work because they don't have Christ. They just got eanity. <laughs> and they're practicing eanity. They don't have Christ. It's Christ that makes Christianity. Not church. It's Christ that makes Christianity. And it's a decisive grace. <laughs> he didn't sit around. Noah didn't say, well, you know, if God's going to build the ark, it's up to him. No. Verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. What did Jesus say? By this people know that you are my disciples if you keep my what? Commandments. Noah got busy. He had a job to do. He knew the flood was coming. And he knew he wasn't going to stop the flood. He wasn't going to save the world. He was not going to save the world. He wasn't going to save the planet. The planet is headed for judgment. But Noah's going to serve God even if judgment's coming. Because God has called him to be a witness and a worker. He's captivated. His rebel heart has been captured by Jesus. It's, he's captivated by the love of God, and he's going to do what his master says. And so saving grace comes from sovereign grace, and it produces serving grace. 
serving grace. Verse 22, Noah did that, all that the Lord said. Now, look at verse 22, then look at chapter 7, verse 1. There's not even just one verse. And the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Do you know how much time is between the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7? How long is that? Here's how long it is. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide with man forever. I'm going to wait. But here's how long I'm going to wait. 120 years. That is how long there is between chapter 6 verse 22 and chapter 7 verse 1 is one. 120 years. Noah started the project when he was 480. And when the flood came, he was 600 years old. He and his family worked on that ark for 120 years. Now you imagine that if you and your family started a family project in 1899. Think about it. He served God in spite of the size of the work. He didn't say, what? How big? How, how, how many cubits long? 300. That's 500 feet. This 350 cubits or so. It's 500 feet. This is one and two-thirds football field. It is 80 feet wide. And it is 45 feet tall. This is a building that is 500 feet long, 80 feet wide, and six and a half to seven stories tall. That's a boat. It's the biggest wooden vessel ever built till this very day. There's never been a bigger wooden vessel. As a matter of fact, until the days of the super tankers in the 20th century, it's the biggest boat ever built. Biggest vessel ever built. How big is it? It will hold conservatively 450 full semis. It is 3.1 million board feet. You can imagine <laughs> Noah. Shem, Ham, Japheth, you might want to grab a saw or two. We got to go to the woods, boys. Man. How long has this thing got to last? Whole flood. And it's going to have some distinctive occupants. Emphasis on the stink. And imagine not just the size of the world, work, but imagine the scorn of the world. Can you imagine? Now it's reasonable. The scorn's reasonable. You're building what? What's coming? A flood. Right. What's a flood? It's going to rain. <laughs> right. Water's coming down from the sky. What's rain? You read. 
Genesis 2, 6 through 8, it had never rained until this day. The earth was surrounded in a water canopy, the greenhouse effect, the original greenhouse effect. And a mist came up and covered the whole earth. The earth, the entire earth, was like one big greenhouse. Yeah, that's the reason up in the Arctic Circle they find woolly mammoths with palm leaves in their stomachs. How do they find tropical trees growing in both the polar ice caps? Because the world changed like that. From a greenhouse to the whole covering ripped away. And freezing started. And animals were frozen instantaneously. Where do you get dinosaurs? Where do you get these bones? What happens to bones that sit out in the desert for thousands of years? They disintegrate. How do you make a fossil? Instantaneous pressure. Science. Best science book in the world right here. Takes more faith to believe that other stuff than to believe this. I'm sorry. I, I appreciate science. I do, folks. But listen to what I'm telling you. Science requires observation. It requires measurement. And it requires reproduction of the results. The scientific law cannot prove how, what, how this world was created or how it's in the state it's in because nobody was there. And when nobody is there, you take the evidences and you deduce back and then you take a step called faith. And it takes more faith to believe that eons of time, things banging around in space created all things that exist, then it does to believe there's a God, the maker, who said, I'm going to take the first world, and we see the evidence of the first world in the prehistoric description that still lasts on this earth. The prehistoric world was wiped away. And that's the reason we still see it, the evidence of it. You don't have to check your brain to be a born-again Christian. You walk into that science room. You walk into that classroom. You bear witness for Jesus Christ and some of the most brilliant scientists in the history of the world believed every word of this book. And they do to this day. It was relentless. 120 years. Noah's floating farm. Noah's folly. People coming up and say, hey, Noah, can me and my girlfriend put our initials down here on the bottom? Because great-grandma and grandpa did it too. <laughs> Relentless. And here's Noah. Largest pulpit in the history of the world. Longest sermon in the history of the world. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. 120 years he preached. It's only 1215. <laughs> Okay? You could have Noah for a pastor. <laughs> 120 years he preached, and other than his family, not one convert. Was he a failure? 
I'll tell you what success is. Success is doing the will of God and leaving the results to him. Because whether they will hear or not hear, whether there's millions of converts or there's not one, they will know there has been a prophet among them. And that's you and me.